Good morning. Welcome to Stonebridge Church. I just want to thank you all for coming out today and joining us. It's always just such a blessing to be here and be part of this. Um, This summer, in case you haven't heard or been here yet this summer, um, we'll be working our way through the book of Psalms. And today we'll find ourselves in Psalm 130. If you've been here, you probably have noticed that there's not really a rhyme or reason to, or it doesn't seem like it at least, that there's a rhyme or reason to what Psalms we're doing. And that's kind of true. Um, If we were to go through the whole book of Psalms, it'd probably take us three years. So we decided more to just kind of make sure we got all of the major types of Psalms. And then within those, let the pastors and whoever would be preaching pick one of their favorites. And so even in that, we're not even really going in any sort of order. Last week we're in 67. Today we're in 130. Next we'll be in 23. We're just kind of jumping around all over the place. But I, I love it and it's... It's fun for me. hope it is for you guys as well. But before we read uh, Psalm 130, I would like to start off by asking you all a question. And that question is, what are you putting your hope in? Now, as followers of Jesus, we know, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we know that our hope should be in Jesus. That we should be letting him infiltrate every aspect of our life and our minds And placing all of our hope in him. But are we? Are we letting him fill every nook and cranny of our hopes and our dreams? Or do we start putting our hopes in other things? Temporary things. We can see this in many areas of our lives. Where we may start to slip that hope off of him. Whether it's in our jobs or in our families. Or in just our own life and our health. We start to misplace that hope in something besides Jesus. And it's okay to have hopes and dreams as long as they're rooted in Christ. And so, the way my mind works, I instantly thought of this idea of like a a lifetime warranty, right? Like a product. And when we buy something that says that it has a, a lifetime warranty or even like a really long extended warranty... We start to place our hope in that item and in this that it will never fail on us, right? When I hear that something has a lifetime warranty, I hope that I will never have to buy that item again, ever. Like this is the last one I will ever buy the rest of my life. So if that item breaks, I become easily annoyed. I feel betrayed. My trust in this product and in this brand is let down. And even if it's replaced through the warranty, I'm just waiting for the day it will let me down again. That's just my pessimistic attitude at times, right? Like, it's just like, well, it failed me once. It'll fail me again, right? A perfect example of this that has recently been coming up in our lives is shoes. I know that may be funny, but... Shoes is something that I was kind of putting a lot of hope in. Last year when we went to Haiti, I went with Haiti, the Haiti team last year, and when we went there, a bunch of the kids were wearing these things called chacos. You know, those goofy little strappy sandals, and I always made fun of them. Whenever I saw people wearing them, I made fun of them. Like, they got that weird toe thing, and I'm just like, I don't know, they look weird. But then I saw the students in Haiti, just walking anywhere in them, walking up the sides of mountains in these sandals, walking in the streets, just walking straight into the ocean with them on. And I'm like, okay, now I get it. Now I kind of want them. Then I heard from people how long they lasted. 
Like they can last forever. So a friend of mine let me borrow her Chacos. These things are 14 years old. Can you see that curve in it? I don't even know how you do that to a pair of shoes. They've lasted. Look at the sole. They're so smooth. Just finally, she's like, well, I think it's about time to get a new pair. They're finally starting to peel on the bottom after 14 years. So I know this. I tell, I tell Andrea, I go, okay, I want a pair now. This is what I want. So she's on Facebook, and all of a sudden she gets an ad, and it's 50% off Chacos. Well, this never happens. Like, you don't find sales on these things. So she purchases it. Right away, my phone dings, and she snatches it out of my hand. She's like, don't worry about it. Okay. The next day, she gets a phone call from our credit card company. The text message was a fraud alert. And they said, we texted you, and then it just, somebody just ignored it. And she's like, yeah, I just thought it was because it was Facebook or whatever. They go, no, we text you because it's fraudulent. That's kind of the purpose of it. See, the website you bought this from was only around for three hours before you made the purchase. And the address for it was China. Just China. Like the entire country of China. What's your address? China. Like, so she's like, okay, this is probably not legit. So it. We forgot about it, moved on with our lives. It's not going to happen this year. A few weeks later, a strange package shows up on our doorstep. And it's like, whatever is inside the package, I can't even tell, but it's like, whatever the product is, has just been crammed in this bag and shrink-wrapped and sealed up in this black plastic. And then there's a label on it, and it's got my address on it, but everything else written on it is in Chinese. So I tear it open, and guess what? It's my Chacos. The ones we canceled. The ones we didn't pay for. But I'm like, okay, they're Chinese. It's from a fraudulent website. They're free. These are probably fake. But I did what any normal person would do. I wore them. And unfortunately, after just one season, you can kind of see mine are a little filthy, but after one season... They're already starting to do what my friends did after 14 years. And the reality is I didn't put a lot of hope in fake shoes. So thankfully for that, I wasn't too let down by those ones. I'm still going to wear them until I completely fall apart and fall off my feet. But the idea is if I would have been putting my hope in these being as good as the other ones, I would have gotten let down really quickly. When we put our hope in temporary stuff, we will eventually be let down. Almost always we will be let down. And like I said before, as Christians, our hope should be in what Jesus is doing in our lives. And we can see that in this passage today. The word hope is defined as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. The Hebrew word that's used here, it can be translated as trust confidence or security. So with that idea of what hope is, follow along with me as we read Psalm 130. It says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
but with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. As we've discussed before, and even just a little bit at the beginning here, there's many different sections of the book of Psalms. And the section that we're in today, basically Psalm 120 through 134, are referred to as the Psalms of Ascent. They were sang by the Israelites as they were ascending to Jerusalem. I have a, a map behind me um, of what Jerusalem or Israel looked like. And we can kind of see that Jerusalem is kind of right in the middle of the country. Even the Israelites who traveled south to Jerusalem would say that they were ascending, that they were going up to Jerusalem. When I hear these words going up to, I think about going north, right? Like we go up to Minnesota, we go up to Canada. I would never say I'm going up to Texas. That just doesn't make sense. But the Israelites would. They'd say we're going up to Jerusalem, no matter where they were coming at from in the country. One reason, well, there's two reasons that they would say this, actually. And I think that they're both really important reasons for us to know. So one reason, as I said last week, um, the city of Israel, or the city of Jerusalem, the temple, was built on a hill. And so right here we have another picture. That gold dome there, that's the mosque right now that's in Jerusalem. That's where the temple used to be. And so we can see this hill that goes up to the temple. So they would literally be ascending this hill as they went up to the temple. So that's one idea of why they would say they're going up to the temple. Another reason, though, was that the spiritual attitude that they had towards Jerusalem. It was meant to be a city set apart, a city on a hill. It was meant to be spiritually above the rest of the world. They were set apart. They were given the laws and the commands of God's, and they were God's chosen people. And so spiritually, it was above the rest of the world at that time. So they were going up to Jerusalem spiritually. Now, I think that's important for us to know as we read through the rest of the Psalms. And even as we get into the New Testament and we start seeing Jesus' words, we can see him saying things, talking about a city on a hill and a light to the nations. For the Israelites, the city on the hill was literally the city of Jerusalem. And the light was God's presence in that city, in the temple. But for us, that city on a hill, it's us. We are the church. We're meant to be a city on a hill in the midst of the culture around us. And the light to the nations referring to God's presence inside of us. We are now this set-apartness, just like Israel was back then. As we look at the Psalms, we can usually tell, especially these Psalms of Ascent, we can usually tell the, the attitude and the mindset of the author as we read through it. Verses 1 and 2, we can see that the psalmist is suffering. He feels distant from God. 
from the depths he is crying out. His attitude is one of distance from God. Like, I, I, I'm distant from you, Lord. I, I just want to be with you, Lord. I don't know what he is going through, what he is dealing with, what he is struggling with, but I know I can relate to this. And maybe some of you can as well. You may be dealing with pain and sickness, hurt and grief. Maybe you're even dealing with sin in your life in some way, shape, or form. In the midst of that pain and hurt and sin, what are you hoping in? I know when I get at low points in my life, there are many times where I just try to fix the problems myself. Maybe some of you have had the idea that becoming a Christian was supposed to fix the problems in your life. I know I had that thought when I first became a Christian. Nine years ago, I gave my life to Christ. Christ found me at one of the lowest points of my life. My marriage was falling apart. My life was falling apart. I was living a life of destruction. At that moment, I accepted Jesus. I felt my heart change. And I felt as if my eyes were open. And I became more open to the idea of having a relationship with him. I started meeting with men in the church who helped me to understand what it meant to truly follow Jesus. But three months later, I was sitting in a hospital room next to my wife while she had 30 seizures a day. My first instinct was anger. I remember praying and yelling at God. God, this isn't what I signed up for. You were supposed to make things better, God. Why are we going through this now? Thankfully, through the godly wisdom of men who were close to me, I was able to better understand this idea of what God's promise of salvation meant. It it didn't mean that he was going to take away all the pain and the hurt in my life. But it meant that he was going to be with me through it all. That he would be a comfort through these times of hurt and suffering. I love in this chapter, in in Psalm 130, I love that the psalmist, he doesn't actually ask for something specific. Even though he is suffering and he feels like he's at rock bottom, his only request is for God to hear him and to have mercy on him. He doesn't pray, God, just help my son to know who Jesus is. God, help fix my marriage. God, help me cure myself of this addiction. Those are okay things to pray for. But we need to be making sure that we're praying, God, just hear me. The psalmist knows that God is here and he's listening. So he just comes to him just saying, God, hear me and have mercy on me. In verse 3, we see the psalmist opening up to God. He knows that he's a sinful man. The New Living Translation for this verse says, Lord, if you kept a record of my sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. Is this our attitude when we come before God? Many people today have a hope in being good enough. They have this hope that they're not as bad as other people. They come before God with this attitude that they deserve something from him because they've lived a moral life. They say things like, well, I've never drank, I've never smoked, I've never cussed. So God owes me something for my moral attitude and behavior. They come before God like the Pharisee in Luke 18. Some of you may know that story. It's It's the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray. And I'll have it behind me here. 
says the Pharisee prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. His hope was in being better than most people. His hope was in his rituals and his good deeds. Some people today act the same way. Their hope is being good enough. There's this evangelistic tool that I I like to use when I'm encountering people. It helps me to understand where they're at spiritually. And the tool, it comes from a book. The book is called Sharing Jesus Without Fear. And you just walk through five questions as you meet with people. And one of them is asking them, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? And why? Now, I'm usually amazed by the number of people who will say that they believe they are going to hell. Now, I don't say that. I don't want you to like, be like, why would you say that? Why, what, is, what are you thinking that? I, I want you to hear, before I get into that, I fully want, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have confessed your sins to God, and if you, have, if you know him and you are following him, you absolutely should have an assurance of salvation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That is an absolute fact. But I'm not amazed by that, that people believe, if you believe that, praise God. But the reason I'm usually amazed with the people that I encounter is because of the other questions that I ask leading up to it. I'll ask things like, what kind of spiritual beliefs do you have? Who is Jesus to you? Do you even believe in heaven or hell? And so I'm amazed because the, 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 the answers to those questions of like, yeah, I don't really have any spiritual beliefs. Oh, Jesus is just a really good person. I don't know if I really even believe in heaven or hell. And then I ask the question, like, oh, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm like, you literally just said you don't even know if you believe in heaven. And now you say you're going to go there. Why? And then they usually list off a few horrible things that they've never done, right? And they're like, well, I've never cheated on my wife. I've never killed anybody. Uh, I've never cheated on my taxes. Whatever it is, this, this laundry list of things that they would never do. So that's what makes them worthy of heaven. When we compare ourselves to other fallen men, we will always be able to justify ourselves. But that is not what God says. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short the glory of God. When we compare ourselves to a holy, perfect, and righteous God, we will always come up short. Every one of us falls short of God's righteous standard. It doesn't matter if we have followed Jesus for three hours or 30 years. We will always come up short of his righteous standard. We constantly need to be praying for God to forgive us of our sins and for him to show us his grace and mercy. Is your hope in being good enough? Is your hope in doing enough good deeds? Is your hope in not being as bad as adulterers, thieves, and murderers? Or is your hope more like the tax collector in Luke 18? Tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Is your hope in God's mercy? Is this your attitude as you approach God in prayer, in Bible reading? God, be merciful to me. I know the wickedness of my heart. God, be merciful to me. In verses 3 and 4, we can see what our response to the fact that we are sinners should be. Seeking forgiveness. 
this psalm was sang by the Israelite pilgrims most likely to ask for forgiveness of their sins before they reached the temple. This psalmist clearly understands the depths of his sin. And he is asking for God's forgiveness. We can see that he has a hope in God's forgiveness. He knows that when he gets to the temple and then when he offers these sacrifices that God has promised that he will forgive him of this. But there's more to it. You can see in this passage, he knows there's something far greater than just this temporary forgiveness. He knows he has a hope in something greater than the sacrifices and the forgiveness that is offered through that. So the Israelites had an understanding of that temporary forgiveness. But they also, many of them, had an idea of something beyond that. Where would they get something like that from? Where would they get this idea beyond the temporary forgiveness? Well, to see that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the story. Genesis 3.15. I'm not going to read it, but it should be behind me here. Genesis 3.15 is the first appearance of the gospel. Most people think the gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Like that's, that's where the gospel, that's where Jesus comes in. And that's true. But the gospel is throughout the entire Bible. This is God speaking to Satan at the fall of man. He is speaking to Satan and telling him, you think you've beaten me. You think you won because they ate of the apple. But someday, the seed of woman, Jesus, will defeat you and he will crush your head. This is the promise from humanity's first failure. God planned a rescue for all of us. The Israelites had a hope in a future savior and future full forgiveness. Over and over again, the prophets talk about a future Messiah. That Messiah is Jesus. He offers us a forgiveness that is free to each and every one of us. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But how can we receive this gift? What do we need to do to receive it? Romans 10, 9-10 tells us. It says, Because if you... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's it. That's all we need to do to receive the gift. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. I once heard a speaker say that Christianity is simple. Belief, confession, follow. That's it. Believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he has confessed that you are a sinner and apart from Jesus, you cannot fix your life and spend the rest of your life here on earth following him, being a disciple of him. That's what it takes. Belief, confession, and follow. But we as humans, we make it hard. We add things to this belief, confess, follow. We say like, well, I just, I can't come to Jesus until I clean my life up first. We say, I need to learn more about Jesus. Once I learn enough about God and I can understand everything in this Bible, then I'll accept him. We may even say, we're worried about what our family may think. I'm going to jump over verses five and six, but I, but I will come back to them towards the end. I want to jump to verses seven and eight because the main point of those two verses Redemption. 
Forgiveness and redemption go hand in hand. Redemption means to rescue or to deliver. That is what God has done. He has sent his only son to rescue and deliver us. There are many Hebrew and Greek words that are translated into our English word redeemed. Many of them. But the one that always stuck with me ever since I learned it in Bible college was a Greek word, agorazo. An agorazo was the marketplace, specifically the slave market. That is the word that God has chosen to explain the relationship between Jesus and the world. Before Jesus redeems us, we are chained up as slaves to our sin. This is the picture that, that I see, at least. Right? Jesus walks into the slave market of sin, where we are bound and, and shackled and left to die in our sins. Without Jesus, we have no hope. We can't break free. We're just waiting to die in our filth. And Jesus walks up and he says, come, follow me and I will redeem you. I will make you whole. I will give you life. I want to have a relationship with you. Come and follow me. Lay down the chains. I have set you free. I have redeemed you. This is Jesus' call to each and every person. Come and follow me. It's simple. What do we do? We hear this call, and we try to put the chains back on ourselves. Even after accepting Jesus, we start to put the chains back on ourselves. The chains of legalism or, or good behaviors. Or maybe we just say like, no, Jesus, you don't understand. I have this addiction, and I hear your words come and follow, but I have this addiction, and I can never be free from it. I've tried everything, and I just can't be free of this addiction. This is what holds me down. And Jesus says, I do understand. I see your addiction. You have to turn to me. I can help you free it. I can set you free. Come and follow me. But Jesus, you don't understand. You don't have parents like I do. They will never accept me. Jesus, I need to have my family. I need to have my parents. What will I do if they don't accept me? Jesus says, I, I do understand. I understand the idea of family not accepting you. They didn't accept me. My own brothers didn't believe that I was who I said I was until I died. Come and follow me. But Jesus, I, I just... I really want people to like me. I just, I really need friends. And I hear that Christians, they, they get made fun of and they get mocked and nobody really likes them anyway. So I don't know if I can, if I can do this. I don't know if I can accept this, Jesus. You don't understand what it's like to live in this world. And Jesus says, I do understand. They didn't accept me. They won't accept you. They hated me. They will hate you. Come and follow me. God has called each and every one of us to come to Jesus and to accept the free gift of salvation and to let Jesus lead us to a better life. This is where you're like, but Joey, you just said that people would hate me. How is that a better life? And this is where we come back to verses 5 and 6. 
It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. God's word promises that he will always be there for us. When we are hurting, he wants to comfort us through his word. When we are angry, he wants to calm us down through his word. When we are in sin, he wants to convict us and lead us on paths of righteousness and wash us new through his word. When we feel like we are all alone and we don't have any friends and we don't have anyone to turn to, he wants to come alongside us through his word. And then there's this verse that I didn't understand the first couple of times I read through it. It says, more than the watchman for the morning. And then it repeats it. I didn't understand what that meant, so I I did some research on it. See, the watchmen were the guards. And they stood on the city wall through the night. All night long, these watchmen stood on the city wall. What are they looking for? Danger. Danger attackers, intruders, whatever it may be. They're looking for people who want to get in and take over the city. This was an incredibly stressful job because it's dark outside. It's hard to see things in the dark. When I thought about this idea, I'm trying to see things in the dark. I remembered a story of when I was first in youth ministry, my first year ever as a youth director. I was still in Bible college at the time and We had this middle school lock-in, which don't ever do middle school lock-ins. If you ever have a chance, if you ever volunteer as a leader for youth, just say no. Like, it's just, (laughs) lock-ins are the worst. And so the students, they wanted to have, they wanted to play hide-and-seek. But I'm like, no, that's a bad idea. I shouldn't let teenagers run off and play hide-and-seek in the church by themselves. So I develop a plan. We'll put them together, two-by-two, same gender. That way no funny stuff is going on out there while they're hiding, okay? This is perfect. I've got it all planned out. So we played a few rounds, and it was all good. And then a couple of my smallest middle school girls, it was their turn. And they were just these little petite things. And they went off, and they hid, and we waited, and then we searched. And we searched, and we searched. After an hour of searching, I started to become very stressed out. We had looked everywhere, and they were not in the building And these were good girls. I told them they couldn't go outside. And I was like, I know they wouldn't have gone outside because I told them they couldn't have. But we, they're not here. We've looked everywhere. So then I had my leaders walking through the church, turning on all the lights and hollering, you win, the game is over, you're the champion. Still nothing. My first thought was that I had lost these two girls. And of course, one of them was one of my elder's daughters. I'm like, that's it. I'm going to get fired tomorrow morning. My career is over before I've even finished Bible college. That's it. And all of a sudden, these two girls come walking down the hallway. Huge smiles on their face. And the one walks up to me and all sassy pops out her hip. And she's like, you would have never found us. (laughs) Years later, I finally got her to admit where they were. They were hidden. We had stairwells in this church, and they were wedged underneath the bottom step, like this far off the ground. But when you weigh like 60 pounds, you can just wedge yourself under these bottom steps. She was right. We would have never found them. It's hard to see things in the dark, especially if those things don't want to be seen. 
just like I was stressed that I had lost these two girls, these watchmen, they are stressed that they might not see danger approaching. Right? It's hard to see in the dark, but there's also another side to this wading through the dark. What comes out at nighttime? What? Wolves? Wolves, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what kind of critters are over in Jerusalem. I've never been there. But there are critters that come out just at nighttime, right? They had to be very observant. They didn't want to see movement and sound the alarm. Danger, danger, and it's a possum. They would have looked like idiots if they had done that. So they stayed up all night long trying to stay awake, trying to see danger in the dark, on the edge, making sure that everything was what they thought it was going to be, just waiting. So what did they look forward to all night long? The morning. The morning meant their job was completed. The morning meant they were successful. The morning meant their stress was over for tonight. The psalmist uses this reference because this is the type of anticipation we should have. Does your soul wait for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning? Are you looking joyfully with anticipation for the day that Jesus will come back and make all this brand new? The day that he will wipe away all sin and pain and sickness We as Christians have hope in something far greater than this world. A hope that keeps us looking for tomorrow, knowing that Jesus will someday come and redeem us fully. And in the meantime, we are here and we are called to be his witness to as many people that we can reach. So I end with a simple question, the same question I started with. What is your hope in? Do you put your hope in being good enough? being smart enough, being successful enough? Or is your hope in the saving work of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness for sins that can only be found through trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior? What is your hope in? Let's pray.